This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 22nd, 2016, the Time to Panic edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my left is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. It's to so my nice to right is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. That's about the size of it, isn't it? <laughs> the, uh, I'm so glad we're in a room together. We haven't it been in a room together so in a long nice. time. It's exciting. We are in the swanky. I think we should ap- apply for some kind of grant so that we could all be in the room together all the time. You think like, someone wants to give us a, yeah, a grant? That, I don't think, I think so. Not, I think that's called our jobs. No, but <laughs> getting called us, the advertisers. That, well, no, but finding a way to get us all into the room. I think there's got to be some phony baloney. There used to in the thing. pre in the pre days when Emily first moved to New Haven. We had some. We had a slush fund for you to come down from New Haven. We once did a, once a something, and then it ended. You stopped wanting well, it's to also go. the I biggest burden on you. Yeah, that was it's the like, problem. But we should meet here more often. I'm all for meeting up in New York. Yeah, that's Guys. fine. All okay. right, no, it's I a think, date. I okay. think that's a good idea. We'll get uh, the MacArthur people have some money, right? Yeah, <laughs> one of us. One of us wins. We all. We all share it. Yeah, instead of a genius grant, what about like a moderately above average grant? <laughs> I can tell this show is going to be a giddy show. On this week's Gabfest, Donald Trump abandons birtherism, or does he? spewing more lies along the way. But also, why do the polls look so good for him? And what's going to happen in the debate? Then the New York and New Jersey bombings, are they going to shape the election at all? Then should President Obama pardon Edward Snowden? Emily, Emily, I'm hoping will argue yes. Maybe she'll argue no. I don't know. We'll find out. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus are Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, the Ralph Naders of 2016, or are they more innocent and valuable than that. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, member or mumber, <laughs> you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, and you can get a discount, a 20% discount or 30% discount. My math is fuzzy. 30%. 30% discount for the 20th anniversary celebration. That's funny. You would have thought it was a 20% discount for the 20th anniversary, but they did a 30% discount, so you can get it for $35 in honor of the Slate 20th anniversary celebration. Also, there's still some tickets, not many, but some tickets left for our live show in Boston on October 26th at the Wilbur Theater at 7.30 p.m. Wilbur. Wednesday. Wilbur. <laughs> the, uh, some pig. <laughs> That's... 
Uh, you've you've listened to the Audible of uh, Charlotte's Web, haven't you? Man. Uh, David just memorizes everything. No, no, no. But the way he said uh, some pig. No, I don't. Was, oh, you really? No, oh, it was so. very close to the E.B. White. I thought it sounded like the movie too. Actually, the cartoon. That's, movie. that's probably more. Uh, that's probably more the source for me. Because the Audible of him reading it is really a treat. It's, Do you think the Wilbur Theater is named after Wilbur? Could be. New England. We'll see. We'll find out. You'll find out, yeah. listeners, if you go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. It's definitely not named after the Wilbur gaming console. Oh, my God. Is John high You're or something? You're not Are they going to continue? No, I was thinking about the PlayStation Theater, what? which I walked by last night, which was a huge line going around it with mag- uh, magnetometers and something big was happening. The PlayStation Theater? Yeah. In New York City, there's a PlayStation Theater, which I did not know. So oh. I walked by it last night and I didn't remember that being a part of Charlotte's Web. So I was surprised. Wow. A lie piled upon a lie. Piled upon a slur, piled upon a lie. On Friday, Donald Trump blithely abandoned the birtherist hate that has been the foundation of his political career. Oh, and, no, he didn't. Well, we can talk about that. So there was a hotel infomercial pretending to be a press conference. And during this hotel infomercial to announce the launch of his new D.C. hotel, which looked appalling, by the way. But got an hour of free media coverage, yeah. wall to wall. Uh, he said that President Obama was born in the United States, period, walking away from his many-year campaign to slur the president and uh, diminish him and delegitimize him. So this is actually a, an endless campaign. John, you had a fascinating interview with with Donald Trump's campaign manager this weekend on Face the Nation. He's sort of walking away from five years of lying about this. Is there any consequence that he will bear politically for the the years of lying? I think there will be some for for a couple of reasons some direct some indirect the main one is that the reluctant republicans the white college educated voters that hillary clinton the republicans have won for the last 50 election cycles that hillary clinton is now ahead with and will be ahead with undoubtedly by the election time those are the voters who, who would who would be in the position to find this the most repugnant and, and just to remind people why this is repugnant i went back and reread a great piece from 1941 that's an essay in Reporting Civil Rights, the modern library collection of nonfiction on the civil rights era, about a man trying to get registered to vote. And it's all of the fake tests he's being given to delegitimize his right to vote. And and I also interviewed John Lewis at the African American History and Cultural Museum. So this is also quite in my mind, the pattern in American life where African Americans were consistently denied the vote, citizenship, housing, education, through false tests to strip away their legitimacy. So that's the historical context of this. So anyway, I think those voters are the ones to be most upset by his under by reminding everyone that he was the nation's chief birther for five years. Then I think there's something that happened in the press coverage, both in his specifically naming that as a lie over five years, and then the two other lies that he told, the first being that Hillary Clinton started this, and we should spend a tiny bit of time walking through that. And then the second lie is that he, and he said this both publicly and then also in a press statement, that he had not been stoking this for racial reasons, although he had been quoted various places along the line saying this was great for Republicans and but that instead what he'd been doing was going was was trying to get to the bottom of this issue and that what he did get to the bottom of it by getting the president to provide his long form birth certificate. The problem with that is the president did so in 2011 and Donald Trump subsequent to 2011 consistently and repeatedly questioned the president's birth, questioned whether the 
birth certificate was a fraud. So those were two new lies minted out of the first one. And I think that brazenness created a new kind of press coverage and a naming of the word and use of the word lie in press coverage in the Washington Post, on Face the Nation, in the New York Times, on the Associated Press, in a way that I think is different from what we've seen before. Emily, do you think that he is going to have to own up to this, talk about this? He has not really done any antagonistic press since this has happened. He's been avoiding press conferences, perhaps because of this or perhaps for other reasons. Do you think that he will actually have a reckoning in front of journalists where he's going to have to talk about this more? Or do you think, you know, he every time we've attempted to, you know, to nail that jello, the jello slips and it, it doesn't appear that anything sticks to him? Is this a sticking thing? Well, that's on journalists to keep holding him accountable. I mean, he said, I believe on Wednesday that he had finally admitted that the birther controversy wasn't true because he was ready to get on with campaigning. So whether the press lets him get on with campaigning or continues to ask questions about his role in all of this is up to the press. And in my view, this new lie about Hillary Clinton is just so devious and so Trumpian, right, that you then slide from attacking Barack Obama, of course, is not up for election, to using your own misdeeds to um, slam and tar Hillary Clinton and create some confusion in the mind of someone. Simply by repeating the lies, I always worry that we are entrenching them in people's hearts and minds. And that is the genius of Trump. And we've seen it over and over again. And it I just find it as a reporter, as someone who devotes time to reporting facts, like, I don't know what to say. It makes me want to strangle someone. When you say repeating a lie, I think what you meant to say, or I'm going to decide you meant to say, is repeating the lie for the purposes of, of debunking it. it. Precisely. Yes. yes. And that's a theory. And this should actually come along. We should have a better word for this, which is the strategic lie told in order to get it fact-checked so that the underlying lie gets carried along in the course of the fact check. But let's just run through the fact check super quickly on the way in which the Clinton campaign in 2008 was or was not associated with this idea. There are three data points. One is that a volunteer coordinator for the Iowa campaign forwarded an email that did not include the question about birtherism. It raised issues about Barack Obama being a Muslim. That person, once the email was forwarded, was fired by the campaign. Hillary Clinton only knew about the firing, didn't know about anything else. Remember, the underlying assertion here is that Hillary Clinton herself Herself. started, started the birtherism. So that's one assertion which is not correct. The second is that Mark Penn, who was the strategist for the 2008 campaign, talked about Barack Obama's citizenship. He never did. There was a memo in which he talked about the various places Barack Obama had lived and that Obama was cultivating the sort of cosmopolitan aspect to his campaign. And basically what Penn said was, you know, he's trying to be the Cosmo guy who's lived all over the, all over the world, but regular American voters are going to, you know, like that you are like Mrs. From America. Scranton. Yes. she. They said the, uh, from what is it? The middle class from the middle of America and the middle of last century. But that had nothing to do with citizenship. It wasn't a laudable strategy, but nevertheless had nothing to do with this. And then the third thing is that Sid Blumenthal, who is a, a longtime friend of the Clintons, reportedly had a conversation with a bureau chief from McClatchy in which he, according to the bureau chief from McClatchy, suggested that somebody from McClatchy go check out Obama's birth in Kenya. Blumenthal denies having done this. The bureau chief from McClatchy originally said he sent someone to Kenya to do that. Now he has come to say, well, he asked the Kenya bureau chief to check it out. Now it turns out that he just asked the Kenyan bureau chief to Kenyan bureau chief or the Kenyan reporter just 
checked out Obama's ties to Kenya. He has family in Kenya, but that's different than whether he was born there or not. So basically, in sum, all you have is a rumor about Sid Blumenthal talking to one reporter. Sid Blumenthal does all kinds of things that Hillary Clinton should disassociate herself from. But that's that's all you have is a single conversation that may or may not have happened between two people, one not affiliated with the campaign and a reporter. That compared to Donald Trump's five-year advocacy for this idea is like the difference between a parent whose child talks about playing pro football and Tom Brady. There is no... I think like, it might be a parent whose child like once tried out for whatever the pop. No, no, I can't even pop. No, no, no. Stop because... the metaphor. It also doesn't make sense because Tom Brady is a praise is praiseworthy. Whereas this. No, but the art, but the comparison is not Tom being made Brady about is Donald praise. Trump in, like that, in that. Right. But the question is. Uh, yeah. But the question. The, sk- <laughs> the skill is the skill is 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 lying and. And uh, lying and obfuscating. Right. But but don't but don't don't do that's not that's obviously not what the point of the metaphor is. The point is that on the one hand, you had somebody actively for five years participating in pushing a story. And in the other, you not only didn't have Hillary Clinton pushing the story, but was not knowing of it and that the underlying pushing of the story may not have even happened. So what's important here is perspective. But I think, as Emily says, people will hear of an attempt clumsy as it may have been to put the things in perspective and and then we've already said like 20 sentences about this totally ridiculous allegation you know what's funny to me is this isn't even the second or third worst thing of trump's week this this business about him proposing that hillary clinton's security detail be disarmed uh and let's see what happened which is pull the threat of political violence is one of the foundational tenets of fascism and he's already said something like this and gotten a lot of criticism from it so he's indefatigable in this idea of calling into question hillary clinton's personal safety Uh, you know his argument was basically she she wants more gun control but she's a hypocrite because she has people protecting her with guns that's a standard that's about the president okay okay, but john but when you when you when you say let's see what and let's see what happens it's it is a that's a the it's that implied thing yes. that he does around violence and the possibility yeah. of violence, which is a thing that that is that is a characterological of, of fascism. It really is. Right. So I uh, just want to flag that. Uh, I, I get that. I guess my point is it's a I don't know how to classify this insinuation. Uh, what I'm trying to distinguish between is the active promotion of an idea for a specific intent which is what birtherism was versus this. It may have the result that you're talking about, but I don't I think in his mind and in the minds of his voters, it's just like, isn't she a hypocrite? Right. And they don't see they see the other as being like, oh, well, that's not what he meant. You're just being right. politically correct. So I'm just trying to put them right. in their proper categories. But it has a useful dual purpose and meaning. You could also argue that he's very he knows, cleverly. That he knows what he's doing. Exactly. Right? Well, that was it. Did you guys read that? I'm going to get to my other thing that. It was infuriating. But the the Atlantic story, <laughs> the Atlantic story about uh, by James Parker about Trump as punk rock. I thought this was fascinating. So James Parker is an Atlantic cultural critic, basically wrote this thing saying that one useful way to look at Trump is as punk rock, which is that it's all performance art. It is all about rage and destruction and that it that creates a joy and frenzy in the audience. And it doesn't matter that if you if you kind of compare how the Sex Pistols behaved on their tours to how Trump behaves, it's very similar. I mean, the message is, as he says, it's like not screw the queen. It's like, yay for cops is the Trump message. But it's that same kind of incoherent, angry. 
well, like cha- chaos, live off chaos against you. That yeah. actually is like yeah. direct, right? Um, it doesn't matter if any of it makes sense or not. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't it, matter it's not important whether it makes sense. Elected president of the United um, States. I thought it was. I advise people to look at it, and I, I'm not doing a good job explaining it. But I thought it was a new way of thinking about Trump that was kind of scary. <laughs> Yet another scary one. Well, my other story, the brilliant David Farenhold comes out with this fact that Trump used his foundation to, to pay private legal <laughs> obligations, which is, you know, classic self-dealing, was incredible. He spent totally a quarter million dollars on this. And I don't know. This is the fourth piece of evidence of foundation donations going back to benefit Trump. The other ones being the portrait, the football helmet and the luxury, some luxury vacation. That's what the attorney general of New York is. Looking but at. even this, in its bizarre way, kind of benefits him because in a recent poll about the Trump Foundation versus the Clinton Foundation, yeah. people, lots of people, most people think the Clinton Foundation is also something set up to manage Bill and Hillary's wealth. Yeah. That is its own, like have no idea that its entire purpose is charitable, that whatever, you know, issues there are with donors to the foundation seeking influence with Hillary when she was secretary of state. The work of the foundations is things like fighting AIDS. Can I just go back to what I think is the is a bigger issue about particularly about birtherism is that it reflects a habit of mind of his, a conspiratorial habit of mind that was on display not only over those five years, but also when he responded to the criticism from former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who said both candidates have issues, but Donald Trump is unfit to be president. Trump responded by calling him a clown and a mess. And then he said, and there's probably something wrong with him we don't know about. That's the conspiratorial instinct, which is also why he thinks that Hillary Clinton was involved in Vince Foster's murder. It's why he thinks he's being audited. Suicide. Because we just a... have to say that. Actually yeah, yeah. Sorry. Suicide. Exactly. Sorry. We're sorry that I got my senses mixed up. Yes, it was a suicide. It's been investigated anyway. Then that he's being audited because he's a Christian. Like he has a whole peanut cluster of conspiracies. That but Donald Trump believes says in. that he Donald Trump is being audited because he's a Christian. Yeah. He's not even a Christian. He's like he's, he he's as Christian as I. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, the, the point he's is more that Christian than you. That's just not saying. I bet he much. doesn't go to church. No, the question. I bet he's been to church. He is like a church that he's affiliated with. Yeah, I have a synagogue that I'm affiliated. You're, with. All right, all right. That's, I, I bet I've been to church more than he has. Let me put it that way. Um, I've anyway, been to church many a time. In the, my life. What What I find interesting here is the when you constantly are involved in these conspiracies, if you really believe in them, then your habit of mind of approaching issues is going to be far different than all the people who are working around you. And then if you use conspiracies as a weapon, which clearly it is in this case against um, both the president Obama and a crutch and a a diversion and and all of that. I mean, it is a central part of his wiring. It is the wiring he will bring to the White House. And that's um, just as we interrogate Hillary Clinton's a penchant for secrecy and what she'll bring to the White House in that regard. And then and then the extent to which outside forces can shape that weakness of hers, that this is, you know, his his weakness. And I don't know how you operate. And you saw the clash between his conspiracies and the structures of even a campaign, which is that, you know, when you have to issue a statement that puts down in words stuff about the conspiracy it just falls apart you know because they had to confect a a statement that said he had given up birtherism in 2011 so i think that's the bigger presidential question right and what does this mean about the way his brain and there's this fantasy that people have that when oh when he's president he will be different or there will be constraints on him or whatever but people it's, it's the same as human beings generally it's like we are who we are it is totally delusional to believe that 
if he is this way as a candidate, that he will somehow be different as a president. There's no evidence in human history of people behaving that way. I mean, often what happens is presidents get driven deeper into their weaknesses. And the question is, what they all have them, as we all do. Presidents have big blind spots. And that's why it's really important to find out if they know what their blind spots are and can have people around who can help cover for their blind spots. If they don't, then and they have just enablers, you get, you know, Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Uh, enabling Nixon's worst instincts. God, I would, it would be great to have Haldeman and Ehrlichman these days. That, would be, that would be a step up. I, that would be, I would Nixon. take Nixon. Oh, my God. It would be so great. Nixon. All right. We're going to close on two things. First, Emily, despite all this, despite the, the usual abominations, the polling for Trump has really never looked better. But wait, he looks, John, he I thought there was good. a new one yesterday <clears throat> that was sunnier for the anti-Trump world. So it, just to give this snap, so there was a Wall Street Journal, NBC Wall Street Journal poll that has Clinton nationally up six points in a four-way race, up seven points in a two-person race. This NBC has just switched their screen from registered to likely voters. What's interesting is Hillary Clinton is actually ahead by a smaller amount among registered voters than likely. The reason that's interesting is traditionally Republicans benefit when you tighten the screen because Republican registered voters tend to vote more than Democratic registered voters. And so usually when you tighten the screen to likely voters, the Republican benefits. So that's a good poll for her. And then especially given the weeks that she just came through. And she's in up the in states, New Hampshire, kind of important. She's up in New Hampshire. And, and, and she's up. You can take the problem with the polls in the states and the polls more broadly is you should look at averages more than individual polls. It's not a perfect way to do it, but it's better than looking at individual polls. And so the states are tightening, but she is still she's still in good shape with the states. And as everybody needs with to the be battleground reminded, states, is that what right? You mean we, sorry. States? Yes. Sorry. Okay. Yes. The battleground states. And we everybody should be reminded that there are 18 states that Democrats traditionally win, which gives her a starting place with 242. And the reason that's important to remember is obviously the Democrats start ahead in terms of the states they traditionally carry, which is why Reince Priebus of the RNC says that Democrats just have to be good. Republicans have to be perfect in order to win. And so when Donald Trump, of, perfect. When what thinking, an idea. When thinking about the states, it's important to remember that she just has more pathways. So he needs to be up in a bunch of different states by a, a lot for it to change the state of play, which is that he would have to pull off, as, as Carl Rose says, an inside straight to win as opposed to Hillary Clinton, who just needs, you know, to pair. All right. Last question on this topic, then we will move on, John, to you. So the this is our last uh, gap fest before the debates, which start on Monday. I'm interested in your thoughts on on what are we looking out for as as an audience? What should we be watching for on Monday? God, I you know, I'm struck recently and going back and looking at all the debates since 1976 this week that um did you watch them all? No. I know. I watched. No, no, <laughs> that no, would no. be so. That would be such a Dickersonian move. Marathon. He's already watched them. Yeah. I know. He's just like refreshing his memory. Well, it's true. Um, is that a lot of what happens in these debates in the coverage? <laughs> that wasn't even like an ironic. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's true. Yeah. Okay. I've memorized them. That's true. I don't need to watch them again. Um, is that is that is that the gaffes or the winning moments are so much a part of their time? I mean, whether it's Dukakis and the question from Bernie. Shaw about his wife being raped or Gerald Ford and there's no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. It, they were a big deal, not so much by themselves, but because of the, the frame that existed before the debate took place. You know, and this is why you see the Clinton campaign talking about how she's preparing for two Trumps. That's not about them telling us how she's preparing for the debate. It's about the Clinton campaign trying to spin the pre-debate 
narrative so that if Donald Trump comes out and is comports himself in a way that is not like the Donald Trump of his rallies, there will be a lot of coverage that will say, well, he looked presidential, a word that um, that I think is pretty useless. Pretty useless. I think we should ban it. Totally useless. Uh, not just with respect to him, but with respect to anyone. So. They're trying to guard against that because if he stays within the, you know, within the lines, then they want to be able to remind people or have people have already in their heads that this is, you know, a, a low bar, a well, a, a different Donald Trump than the than those kind of essential Donald Trump. They also are saying that Hillary Clinton's getting prepared to fact check him. That's not just about telling us that that's what she's doing, but it's about reminding everybody that he has, you know, issues on on the question of fact. What we're looking for is what lives past the night. What is the thing that's going to get played over and over again and define the period between the debates more than the narrative of the debate from start to finish? Because mostly a lot of people are just going to see what they want to see in the two candidates. It'll just reaffirm their pre-existing notions. I mean, I have a bunch of stuff I'm looking for, but I'm not the regular person. I have two questions. So who's moderating on Monday? Lester Holt. Well, I'm also interested in the way the press fact checks and deals with Trump and how much Trump is allowed to lie, because surely that's one of the things he will do. And to some degree in debates, there's always reeling off of statistics that fall apart upon analysis. But since Trump takes this penchant further and I still think the most effective moments in the Republican primary debates were the ones in which he was played his former statements and asked about them. And the most ineffective was when he repeated a lie and was not called on it because someone didn't have the facts at her fingertips. I want to see Lester Holt. I think doing one's job in this debate is different than doing one's job in a debate where people, candidates, essentially play by the old rules. I think that's a really important and interesting and correct point. We're in the middle of a medium moment here where where everybody is trying to figure out how to handle a candidate like Donald Trump, who is in a special category in terms of some of the things he said. And, and birtherism is not just birther is the latest one, but things like the Iraq war saying he was against it. I just for whistle stop did an episode on Obama in Iowa in 2008 and went back and re- listened to everything he said in 2002. That's what a person who's against a war sounds like. You know, uh, Donald Trump not only was not against the Iraq war, but um, even when he expressed doubt about it after the war had started, it was nothing close to the way he expressed doubt about, say, something like the Central Park Five. And it certainly was nothing close to the way Barack Obama expressed doubt about the war in 2002. I think you're right. I think it's really and I think the way that it'll be framed will be interesting. And then the way in which Donald Trump, who's already said that that it's rigged and the media is out to get him, the way he and his supporters will respond. I think when 80 percent of your supporters are voting for you because they're terrified of Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump doesn't have to do anything for those people because it's Hillary Clinton they don't like. The other thing I am looking for are the gender dynamics on Monday night. So part of me is just feels a sense of horror that any woman is going to have to stand on a stage with someone who is such a certifiable misogynist. That just seems upsetting to me. But of course, I can't decide whether it will be better for Trump to say something totally offensive and awful so that people will see his true colors and Clinton can get the benefit of, you know, having to Sympathy. Uh, the sympathy, sympathy benefit. The sympathy benefit of that insult, or whether to hope that she is spared such a rotten ordeal. But then, on the other hand, then people will pretend some some people will try to 
woo themselves to sleep that this isn't a real thing and that actually like well then we'll hear about how respectful he was toward her and how he treated her with dignity and that will make me also want to vomit let me add one final thing on the debate question quickly if i can which is Hillary Clinton, again, going back to the 2008 race, one of her worst moments in 2008 was a debate at Drexel University in Pennsylvania where the whole beginning of the debate, they beat up on her about her uh, lack of transparency, lack of candor, trying to have it both ways. And then she stepped into that when an answer on driver's license for undocumented workers that was on both sides of the issue. It was as if they'd said, we've said all these bad things about you. Now, would now you please prove, prove this right after we set this up? And I think if she... Either whether it's on the question of the server, her responses to the server questions, uh, Benghazi, the her health. If she gives an answer that sounds in it's coming when it's coming out of her mouth, regardless of the words, if it sounds like someone that's hedging, that will be the clip that gets played over and over again. It will re animate this her bigger problem biggest problem can i say one more time though i so i for a piece i'm writing i was going back into years of hillary bashing and hillary land like way back i mean the 90s but even in the 70s man that woman has taken some unfair hits and i just think there is a way in which we can't really imagine how that affects the way she hears criticism. There's no way her whole psychology couldn't have been distorted by all of that. It's crazy. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Ahmad Khan Rahami is in custody out of after a shootout with New Jersey police. He is blamed for the bombings and failed bombings in New York and New Jersey this past weekend. The notable success he had, I suppose, is the pressure cooker bomb that blew up a dumpster, injuring 30 people, but fortunately killing nobody. Uh, there was this brief fear that this was a this was going to be some kind of terrorist cell in, in New York and New Jersey. It doesn't so far, the evidence has not seen that that is the case. He may have been radicalized by travel in Pakistan and Afghanistan. He also, of course, has a history of temper, violence, erratic behavior. His own father had flagged him for authorities. Authorities had him on a watch list back in 2014, although don't seem to have stuck with that. Emily, was this a terrifying and dangerous attack, a presage of something bigger? Or is this, uh, you know, the kind of thing we just accept as the cost of living in a 
open society where there are people who are disaffected and will do bad things. Well, this is our new weird pattern where terrorist attacks turn out to be not the work of some organized group of people who are actually working with ISIS or al-Qaeda or some other radical group. They're people who are have probably some kind of mental illness or other kinds of mental problems, and they are inspired from afar, or in this case, a little bit of a near since um, Rahami to go to Afghanistan, and then they come back and they do really scary things on their own. And I don't see how we can ever completely prevent that or protect ourselves from that as a society. It's it is the small but real tie between untreated mental illness and gun violence. And well, this wasn't you know, gun violence. Well, that's true. I'm sorry. Violence. Bomb and in fact, violence. there were two attacks this week, and neither of them was there was a stabbing in Minnesota by somebody. Good. Neither. Fact neither guns. My gun violence is wrong. The no. old pattern tended to be people who shot up a place, a school, a workplace, and I'm sure we'll see that again at some point. And like we've cured that illness, but we also have this other pattern going on and it is scary but i just i mean i was reading the criticisms of you know hillary clinton's response of donald trump's response none of these responses have the power to eradicate this problem do you think john that there's any political hay to be reaped harvested uh made here is this something that, in fact, benefits Trump? There was a piece in Slate by Will Salatan arguing that there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that this is this is making Americans turn towards him any more than they already have. I don't think it matters. I think you need a bigger event to take place. I think you could even argue that we may be becoming habituated to this kind of thing, like a thing, you know, there's a tragic event and it's horrible, but people get used to it. And the more people get used to it, it seems to me the harder it is for uh, a candidate to play on the the fears of the moment. This also has to do with where you stand depends on where you sit, because a lot of the Trump voters see the world as more dangerous and more threatening than the Clinton voters. So everybody event like this happens and everybody sorts to their previous places. You know, in terms of the presidential campaign, you're talking about convincing people who are either uncertain and are switching between two candidates, a small group, or people who are worried about Trump and aren't turning out. And those people are going to have like 52 more things to assess between now and the election, including the violence in Charlotte in the wake of shooting there. So I was in Manhattan this week. And in fact, I had dinner last night just around the corner from where the Chelsea bombing took place. And I was I happened to be there and I was just struck that, well, there's no sign that anything happened here. It's just like, yeah. Cleaned I, up. It's cleaned up. It's more just like everything was going on. There was it's no also elevated. Died. If elevated, someone had died, it would be different. That is absolutely true. But there was a there's an interesting um, piece about sort of the problem of loss aversion that people are much more anxious about things they lose than they are conscious of the gains they're getting. And and I I do think there's a this way in which the ability to sort of be resilient, just to kind of get back to everyday life and to to kind of enjoy the benefits of the open society and free commerce and free moving around. Like we 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 discount that, but actually that's a huge benefit. And when you get really fearful and paranoid and scared, and you close up, you lose that. Where was it? Like I was reading about somewhere where there's been a there'd been a kidnapping of a child. There'd been a kidnapping of a child in a town, and basically the whole town then shut down. So it was a random 
Jacob Wetterling. It wasn't a Jacob Wetterling. It's actually a different child kidnapping. Another part of that story too. Yeah, and and that you lose so much when you retreat into that shell of fear, and everyone says, "Well, you got to be careful and careful," but but it's hard. It's very hard to to kind of count the benefits of being able to move about freely and that uh, closing in aversion that you talk about. There's a, this is a little bit tangential, but it was fascinating. I was reading this political science from the six from 60 and 64, where they um, looked at voters and said that voters will be more inspired to vote if they feel their right to vote is threatened, than they will be inspired to vote for a candidate they like. So well, this you, is the interesting backlash to the voter ID laws is that they also got people to the polls who were angry. Yeah. Um, and but but you also think about it in terms of things like the Confederate flag, um, somebody who might have just, you know, whatever. Right. Had a guns. Confederate, I mean, it's a guns. guns, are, guns. You're coming to take my gun. Right. Right. right which right. which means like I might not have cared at all about the gun debate at all for 20 years. But now you're coming to take my gun. You know, I'm going to go get another one. How have we gone to a political system, particularly around presidential campaigns, where the optimism – it used to be that the, the message was always like optimism, America's the greatest days are ahead of it, uh, was the default of all presidential candidates. Yeah. And you had to do that and that was defi- – I mean it was a particularly defining aspect of the Republican Party over the last 25 years. And how have we just so quickly fled from that towards this – this notion of collapse and dystopia and chaos and and that is that that is what is animating more voters. I, it's well, the out really party alarming. always the out party always is a little bleaker than the in party, you know, in term because they're mining the dystopia that their the candidate that their supporters feel from the incumbent party. So now, having said that, Barack Obama ran largely on a on a message of optimism after four after eight years of a uh, president that democrats seriously disliked so uh, that's obviously not always true i mean i always relate this to this the poll showing that white people in particular feel that their children's lives won't be as good as their lives that they're in worse shape than their parents were and i keep wondering if this election is the the last stand of aggrieved white people as they watch the demographic picture of the country change. And instead of joining in and celebrating that transformation, worry only about what they're losing. Well, I I worry. I mean, I certainly because of climate change, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that life will be worse for my grandchildren than it is for me. Yeah. Right. Right. But But I don't but I don't but I but I live in a kind of where I am sort of have faith in human ingenuity and want people to continue and the their existence on to you. I mean, the temperature is going up in a way that is irritating, but climate change still feels pretty abstract and far off. Or maybe that's actually not true. And yet it's just simply like, I don't think your life is being, well, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It seems like you're not as immediately and materially affected as some of the people I'm thinking of. The point you made, Emily, is I don't think it's all white. <laughs> it's all white people, as David's trying to point out. I think there's a oh, the of profile not. of the Trump voter f- maps Some very closely people. to what you're talking about. All right. Just to go back to, to wrap it up by going back to Rahami. So the fact is that Rahami is a an immigrant from Afghanistan, married to a Pakistani, maybe, or may, he spent time in Pakistan. He is a Muslim and he seems to have been radicalized and is clearly carrying out a terrorist attack on America. There are tons of violence that's committed against Americans. People are getting killed by people of all sorts who are of all religions and backgrounds. But there is a particular kind of 
terrorist act which has been taking place in the United States with with some frequency over the past 15 years carried out by Muslim immigrants, some citizens, some Muslims who are American born who are radicalized. It is like very it's very difficult to talk about this without ending up in in some saying terrible things. But how can Hillary Clinton and her supporters acknowledge that there's something going on, talk about this without becoming they have to acknowledge it. I think they do have to acknowledge it in some fashion. How do they acknowledge it, Emily? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, in months past, President Obama and Hillary Clinton have been reluctant to use the phrase radical Islam as a way of defining this problem. At the same time, it is true that there is some kind of link in some of these um, attacks. And it seems like an increasing percentage of them, at least the ones that get lots of attention. So this question of Understanding the way in which, uh, you know, a particular virulent strain of a religion may influence people, that is like worth unpacking. I mean, if you're a scholar of religion or of Islam, you have to grapple with that. I also think one of the things that's tricky about this, you know, President Obama had ran into trouble, I suppose, when he tried to talk about the past of Christianity, the the Crusades, the times in which Christianity has also um, used violence as a tool to oppress and hurt people. Because that was so far in the past. And so it seemed like the equivalency was wrong. There has to be some way of grappling with how religious extremism in lots of religions can have these really alarming outcomes, can justify violence. I mean, the settlers in um, the West Bank in Israel, the Jewish settlers, certainly use their apocalyptic notions and their religious extremism to perpetuate acts of violence. Anyway, it's tricky. But I do think pretending that a religion has no influence is, is just not a satisfying answer. You know, it's also we got to find a way to allow people to use metaphor without I, I say this in defense of my Tom Brady metaphor, too, <laughs> without um, w- w- while recogn- recognizing the lim- limitations of the metaphor. So Obama was just trying to say, you know, make a historical analogy, but obviously implicit in I think implicit anyway, in making that kind of using that kind of metaphor and all metaphors is that they only go so far. They are used to illuminate one little aspect of the of the argument. But David's point is exactly right. And it leads to a question about law enforcement, which is if you have these instances and they are all coming from one community. Profiling, that's where you're headed. I that's, mean, that's where Donald Trump is. And, you know, we already arrived. There's a flip view of it. The Hillary Clinton view is sort of like, well, we're not going to profile. We're going to have intim- more intimate relationships with communities. We're going to build up these bonds with communities right. where Muslim Americans live. And that intimacy and connection is going to be and they're the our source best of defense it. And they're, yeah. Because they're going to ferret people out who are doing harm. And when you look at Europe and the greater problems they've had with disaffected, isolated Muslim immigrants and populations, that seems like the right call. It doesn't, though, have this kind of tough, cracking down, strong man approach that sometimes people crave when they're scared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Oliver Stone's new movie, which I haven't seen. Have you guys seen? 
the look the, if 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 audio could capture the look on Emily Bazelon's face at that moment. <laughs> Uh, we would have to bleep it out. With the last Oliver Stone movie I saw was. I watched Laura Poitras' movie about Edward Stone. Does that did, count? Did you see uh, the Stone movie? No, I didn't, I oh. didn't see it. Well, I didn't, uh... So Oliver Stone has a movie, Snowden, which lionizes the former uh, NSA contractor who collected uh, and then leaked tons of documents to WikiLeaks, a million documents from the U.S. Um, national security apparatus, some of which were then published by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and a German paper, I think. Uh, now, of course, Snowden is uh, living in exile in Russia. He is unable to come back to the United States because his passport has been taken, but he is also uh, unwilling to come back because he would be prosecuted were he to come back. But this week, because of the Stone movie, there have been calls for or questions about whether he should be pardoned there have been editorials on both sides of that issue. And Emily, should he be pardoned? Should Edward Snowden be pardoned for stealing and leaking documents which both damaged and maybe strengthened America? Right. So the argument for is that he performed a really important public service that we're all benefiting from. This is true, right? I mean, there were direct reforms that came out of the revelations in his documents. And one can hope that future administrations and American governments will be slightly less likely to just like surveil the hell out of everyone illegally. On the other hand, the argument against Edward Stone is that this document dump went too far, that, yes, there were, was some whistleblowing in it, but there were also a lot of spewing of information in a way that was irresponsible. And Fred Kaplan has done a really close reading and parsing of this for Slate. He is very skeptical of the argument for pardoning Snowden. I mean, so a pardon seems completely unrealistic to me. Yeah. I think the intelligence community would literally just like quit a mass if President Obama or the next president did such a thing. Mm-hmm. And that is like a real value to me. I don't want them to quit a mass because even if I'm worried about their excesses, they're still important folks to have working for the country. If it was up to me and there was no political fallout or a manageable amount of fallout, yeah, I would pardon Edward Snowden. And the other thing is people hold against him that he's in Russia, you know, kind of as Putin's guest. I feel like he had nowhere to go. And so that part of it just seems irrelevant to me. John is skeptical. <laughs> well, there are many other countries on the planet. Nobody wanted the, him. Yeah, it would be hard for him to get to them and, and be in them. I, I think well, it, I don't think it was a great choice, but <laughs> not a great choice. <laughs> I mean, let me put it to you this way. Like right now, John, I'm telling you, you've got to go. You're about to be accused of a terrible crime. You've got to go somewhere through the choices I made. And by the way, through, through the choices, Manning but where you're going to be extradited, solitary confinement. Like but this the is the knock on. This is the these are the following on effects of when you do this, not just exposing something that needed to be exposed, but you end up empowering. A, an adversary slash sure enemy both of the China States. and the United uh, China and Russia benefited enormously from Snowden's leaks absolutely and right like so we, I guess it it um, weakened and, our, and and weakened but also probably you know could very well have caused other things that I'm going to start sounding like one of these conspiracy theorists but I mean the, the there's significant downsides to the to what China and Russia may have gotten that that would undo some of the benefits that he might have gotten from exposing what he did. I mean, I guess I'm just trying to add this to the balance. Sheet. Right. Totally. Yes, well, the, there are people and it. I think Glenn Greenwald has made this argument that we should think of this as citizens of the world, as citizens of the world. We should oppose government surveillance of the sort that the NSA is doing, whether it's in our own home country or whether it to undermine the Chinese Internet or to damage Russia. Do you guys think that we have an obligation as Americans to oppose 
offensive uh, intelligence gathering by the NSA and uh, no. disruptive cyber war things that the NSA is doing? Or should we support that? I mean, I think we inevitably think as American citizens more than or at least along with being citizens of the world. And so if you think that having a more powerful Russia under Putin is a poor idea, which I surely do. And if you're nervous about China, uh, at least, you know, achieving some kind of world domination, not that like that's about to happen, but if you play that out a little bit. Of course, the United States should have intelligence gathering networks and activities that are impeding those kinds. It's just that we don't re actually really understand or know what's happening. And Snowden's revelations did also help us achieve really important reforms. Well, the really important part, achieve some reforms and hopefully prevent other harms. How about the, that? One of the arguments I think that's most interesting in favor of pardoning is that my natural instinct is, well, if you commit an act of civil disobedience, which is great, and he certainly did, more power to you, but you have to be able to willing to bear the price. But the price that we have so imposed high. is way too high. The fact that Chelsea Manning is living in solitary. That so if Snowden came back and he's put on trial for, you know, he probably could face execution. I, in theory, I don't think they would execute him, but, but I think in he'd theory, be in prison. Be life, the, it could be life imprisonment in a federal supermax facility you know, for doing this. And so there's no reason for him to take that risk. And and the price shouldn't be, I think if you commit that act of civil disobedience, it's not reasonable for us to expect that you should take that price in the way that Martin Luther King could take 30 days in parchment in a Birmingham jail because the punishments were so, the punishments for this are so out of proportion to, to the crime. And to make a more lawyerly point, the 1917 Espionage Act, which would be the basis, presumably, of this prosecution, is broad and vague and should be redrafted and allows for way too much punishing of plain old leaks along with the dissemination of damaging to the United States information. Do you guys think that the Washington Post should be condemned for not calling for a pardon for After Snowden? publishing all these so documents. So the Washington Post published, yeah, one of, one of Pulitzer published all these documents. Not just, they didn't just publish the documents which were about the terrible things the NSA was doing to American citizens. They also published documents revealing activities that the NSA was pursuing overseas. They certainly didn't simply limit it to, to the good parts of Snowden's leaks. The editorial page, which is separate from their news operations, the editorial page has said he should not be pardoned, whereas I think the Times and the Guardian and the whatever whatever the German entity is are more in favor of it. Do you think the Post is wrong there? Well, it's two different parts of the Post. Surely the editorial pages have editorialized in favor of disseminating what Snowden disseminated, right? They weren't. Surely. I can't. I mean. They didn't say, hey, surely wait, stop some, the presses. Yeah. Yeah. There is something yeah, I mean, super weird about journalists praising themselves, heaping prizes on themselves for publishing documents from a source who they then think should spend the rest of his life in prison. That's just weird. The prizes part is weird because the <laughs> well, no, well, I'm yeah. just trying to figure out who's contributing to what. So, the, I mean, the Post obviously applied to for the Pulitzer or do, do, you, do you submit yeah. for the prize okay yeah. so you they submitted for the prize I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what's the the distinction between I mean obviously Snowden made commitments to his government that he would behave a certain way and chose to break those commitments the Washington Post didn't make those commitments and the, so the Washington Post could say we were just publishing news we thought it was new, newsworthy that this was out there and they can nevertheless still have um a negative feeling about the commitments that Snowden broke and therefore basically hang their case on not. We don't think him. you should leak, but we're willing to benefit. Yeah, from I feel like that's the little. Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out. That's what I'm trying to figure out whether fly out of this dilemma. And it doesn't satisfy anyone but journalists. And it doesn't yeah, yeah. satisfy me. And I'm a journalist. But can't you um, 
can't you say this is newsworthy, but it's not laudatory for the person? And and obviously a pardon is not a, a, a laurel that that he would get, but that it's newsworthy, but not beneficial to the person, to the underlying person who did it. If you try and be just totally antiseptic about it, if you thought somebody committed a crime, you would report on the crime, but not think the person should be pardoned for the crime. Now, yeah, it's, the, it's the award the, thing. Yeah, at that analogy, but, 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 but wait, but, but why did they give it to you? Why is giving it to you? through a leak any different to than giving it to you by just doing it in, in public because you're working with that person you're essentially collaborating with them but, to decide well i don't think the post the post did not directly collaborate with snowden did they they Barton Gelman was very much a part he one of the source, people that yeah. Snowden it, sorry I, got, I was getting confused i was thinking it, i just Greenwald. i was just thinking it was going through wikileaks i got muddled yeah. no no yeah. right no. it was direct it was yeah. direct. Um, right it's a good point and the prize part is the other thing that's now you want to now you want journalists to give up prizes john <laughs> what, give up, what else give... is there to take from us <laughs> did the uh, editorial page explain itself yeah it said that he had done more harm than good essentially yeah. that he had disseminated a lot of information that hurt the united states interests and that you can't let people off the hook for that it sets a bad precedent yeah okay but well, we'll, go. we're going to keep our pulitzer thank you very much Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're at the Slate 20th anniversary party and you're kicking back a drink tonight, Emily, what are you going to chatter to one of your old Slate colleagues you about? Call on John first while mm-hmm. I refresh my memory. John, what are you going to chatter about? Uh, well, first of all, I wish I were there to be able to celebrate the uh, 20th anniversary of Slate. My Contribution will have to be my hour-long whistle stop, uh, which was a part of the Twistlate 20th anniversary package. I'm sorry that it was an hour long, everybody. So my chatter is about uh, Victorian death photography, which I did not realize this. I mean, I knew they had a fascination with death, right? Okay, that's fine. I knew that. But I was on one of my whatever, wanderabouts in the internet and came across President Garfield's death mask. We've had some discussion of President Garfield and his <laughs> horrible medical treatment. I feel and, like you could do a whole book about President Garfield's oh, death. God I think somebody forbid. has. No, no, oh, I think metal de- has. The metal detector. The yes. invention of the and, metal and detector and, and, and the Edison iron bed. being brought in. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And basically the... the you know, the doctors, the doctors were like rooting around at him the way you would a lost baseball. John, in the I love this. Gonna... Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, they were just like, oh, well, I lost that. I lost the baseball's got to be in here somewhere, you know. Um, anyway, but that's not the point. The point is that I was looking at his death mask and then I was kind of like, when did we stop doing death masks? I mean, uh, and then I went and looked at some of the famous death masks, in- including the one of William Blake. Which seemed perfect. Like that looked like William Blake to me. And also it looked like the William Blake of his later years in which they basically said he went insane. There's Napoleon's death mask. Anyway, I went down a death mask wormhole. But then somebody on the Twitter, which I've mostly stopped reading mentions, but... Um, but this one but, suddenly somehow well, got through to you. No, this one, I was looking at the posting to see if anybody had an answer. And this one person forwarded me a picture of these Victorian photographs that 
what they what some families would do is when somebody died in the family, they would take the body to a photographer shop and they would take a picture of the bo- of the dead person as if they were alive. There is a website that the I can't find it, but just Google, uh, you know, Victorian death photography. And it's the 25 most frightening images of people, you know, young women who died dressed up in their wedding David's got the uh, the the death masks up on his computer here. That's Mary Queen of Scots after they yeah. uh, decapitated her. They did a death her mask. Her hair is so she has great hair. I bet that was a imp- well. I guess it was a mask, so it would have been her hair at the time. Anyway, uh, sorry for that detour. The they the, they <laughs> no, would, you're not women. Uh, you know, a young woman dressed in her wedding dress, standing there looking like she's alive, but she's dead. And then they would. Children, they would have the whole family line up, all the kids line up, and then the one at the end would be the one who looked a little bit with the middle distance stare, and that would be the dead one. It was, I mean, when you look at 25 of these in a row, it is very hard to come back down to the planet Earth that you're on. It was so freaky and like disturbing. Really bad game Wait, is this a Thrones public episode. collection somewhere? You saw it's it online? A, I but saw it, it on, you know if it's online. a physical place i don't know probably it's probably it should be an atlas obscura oh my god it's got atlas obscura written all over it and then also the the ones in which it was a photographer's art to make it look like the dead man was like leaning on his fist in contemplation but it was really to hold up his i mean it it uh it will rattle your teacups there in the middle of the day when you meant to just be looking up something, you know, so you could get back to your can writing. You, can you writing. send that around? Yeah, that. we'll uh, we'll post the link on our uh, Slate.com GabFest page uh, of these pictures so that everybody can freak themselves out in the middle of the day. Super. Emily Labaz. I recommend a piece in Vox by German Lopez comparing the police response to these awful shootings of unarmed black men in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Charlotte, North Carolina. So in Tulsa, the police immediately released all the available video they had of the shooting. In Charlotte, North Carolina, there is supposed to be, or at least maybe dashboard camera footage, but the police said they won't release the video because it's part of an ongoing investigation. And there's also a fight going on over this because in July, the North Carolina legislature passed a controversial law that prevents police from releasing video footage without a court order. So if you're in the video, you can request it, but then you have to get a court to actually order its release. So this response in Charlotte, North Carolina, of course, flies in the face of all of this calls for body cameras from police. And it just seems like such a misguided and deliberate effort to protect the police from their lies. I mean, what horrifies people in these shootings is when the police give a completely misleading or inaccurate description of what led up to the shooting. And yes, it generates enormous outrage to see that people are being what looks like murdered rather than shot down in self-defense. But that is super important for us to understand. And this whole movement toward videos and body cameras is an intended reform. And if, you know, laws like this one in North Carolina are able to just like completely rob it of any force, that's going to be a huge loss. My chatter, threefold chatter, two-thirds log rolling, one-third not log rolling. I'll get the log rolling out of the way. One, the Atlas Obscure book is out. And it's beautiful. It really is. Really, it's like a really treasure fabulous. to behold. It's really... And to flip through and to I know. read and yeah. absorb, and it makes you want to go everywhere. It's I know, really exactly. It's a great um, book. All right, so John and Emily did a third of the log rolling. The second third of the log rolling is 
that in in honor of the book's launch, we're doing a nationwide book tour events all over the country, starting in New York on Saturday night. Uh, we'll be in Philadelphia at the Mütter Museum. Uh, a crazy fun and creepy place. Yes. And then in D.C. on next Thursday night, the 29th, I will be with uh, the book's co-authors, Josh Ford, Dylan Thuris, and Ella Morton. And we'll be doing a thing at Sixth and I, Beloved Sixth and I. And you can get tickets to that at atlasobscure.com slash bookdc. It's going to be really fun. Josh and Dylan Ella are great storytellers. And I'm, it's, it, the book is beautiful. So you should come on at atlasobscure.com slash bookdc. My real chatter, though is about a fantastic piece of video that uh, I saw, which is a BBC doing a show about Neanderthals. That's how you say it, right? Neanderthal. Neanderthal. Really? Well, just the ones, just the so ones that weren't that short. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that. That was good. That was well, well played. I think you should go back to Neanderthal. Anyway, the Neanderthals and Thals, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, they've been trying to reconstruct how they sounded. And so they got a voice actor to reenact how to go Neand- back in time. Well, no. to, to to reenact how a Neanderthal might have sounded based on their physiognomy and and kind of what we know about their shape and their bodies and and so here and their voices are so goofy. So here's this BBC interviewer prompting the voice actor to say one two three. Now speak. One two three. Now let's make a sound. Just let's make a huge R. And again. So high-pitched. It's, it's awesome. so high-pitched and screechy. It's, I just <laughs> thought it was so funny. And you I, watch it. The watch scene in the video is also really fun because you have this actor being Neanderthal-like. It feels like, a, uh, um, it feels like I saw that Monty Python sketch. <laughs> was, that's what it, right, that's what it was. I couldn't think of it. It is a Monty Python sketch. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. The show is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today, including John's death thing should be up there, which I need to link to. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and email is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe and iTunes, leave a comment and rating for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 